Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. We've seen now, you know, thanks to social media, um, like just this idea of comics now have their own very substantial fan bases and you don't even necessarily need to go through a club system anymore. You can kind of create your own path as some sort of freelance comedian or uh, whatever the appropriate term would be. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So glad you're here. So glad you've been so supportive and really, really grateful for this show and for starting it so long ago and how it's changed my life and how it's hopefully had a little bit of an effect possibly in changing your life as well. And today I have a great episode with somebody I've known a long time, Julie Seabaugh, and she's an incredible person, and she has done so many great things in her career and her life, culminating with a great project that I'm really proud that she's doing, and talk about inspirational and I'm talking about the documentary too soon about comedy after 9-11. It's pretty intense, pretty impressive, and a really extraordinary look into that time when the first time in my life when the comedy club circuit completely closed down and the integration of having audiences come back and trying to get back to normal. Make sure you look that up. It's airing on Vice. Really, really special, special project. Before I get started, I want to let you know if you want to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram, or you can do so by just simply going on my website, barrycats.com, and leave me a message there. There's, You'll find me. And without further ado, let's start this first episode out of two. 
Julie C. Baugh is a freelance comedy journalist, producer, and director. She received her Bachelor's of Journalism degree with honors from the University of Missouri, and she received her postgrad certificate in digital publishing from New York University. She discovered stand-up when Dave Attell performed during her senior year of college, and she got the bug and never let it go. In 2003, she founded and edited the print and online comedy magazine, Two Drink Minimum. As the only full-time freelance comedy journalist in the United States, she's contributed to the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Hollywood Reporter, GQ, Variety, The Village Voice, Huffington Post, Spin, Playboy, Vulture, Paste, Time Out New York and Chicago, and numerous other prestigious publications. Her coverage of modern roasting culminated in the 2018 book Ringside at Roast Battle, the first five years of LA's Fight Club for Comedians. Additionally, she produced and hosted to 2020's Hope on Top, a Mitch Hedberg oral history for Sirius XM's Comedy Central channel. Among her career highlights was getting the cover story on not only the Village Voice, but the LA Weekly. Her interviews over the years have been legendary and have included such comedy luminaries as Christopher Guest, Carl Reiner, Steve Colbert, Joan Rivers, George Carlin, Don Rickles, Eddie Izzard, Howie Mandel, Jimmy Kimmel, Judd Apatow, Lily Tomlin, Seth Meyers, Wanda Sykes, Zach Galifianakis, and Jon Stewart. As a previous A&E staff writer at Las Vegas Weekly, she won a Nevada Press Association Award for a cover profile tracing the downward health spiral of the amazing Jonathan. Most recently, alongside Emmy-nominated director and editor Nick Scown, she's currently producing the documentary Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11, to air this week on Vice. Please welcome my guest today, what an honor, Julie Sebaugh. Oh, no, I, the pleasure is all mine. I'm like very, very thrilled to be here. So yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, diving in, getting to some uh, comedy depths. I have so much respect for you. We have this weird business relationship. Do we? Yes. Clue, a, clue me into our, okay. our weird relationship. So I have a business relationship with you, like two ships that pass in the night. I just always had this like powerful respect for you. And you probably say to yourself, like, what is he talking about? What is he? And there's just something about how you've navigated comedy. I don't know. You're just really great at choosing words and phrases to describe the magical nature of this crazy fucked up business. <laughs> You've seen people like I have that you sit down with them and you wonder, am I ever going to see that person again? Because they're doing things to their body and their mind that large animals couldn't withstand. And you've seen so many incredibly talented people who just every day were just taking it all for granted. And I think one of the things that 
I think we're both sitting here and I'm talking a lot, but I think you'll know where I'm going, is that as I sit across from you, I really realize to myself that we're in a profession, we've chosen a profession where most of the people that are in it, at least the performers, they take for granted how blessed they are to have experienced the kind of success that they have. And they don't, once they get there, treat every day like they aren't there. And they change as people. Now, there's certain people who never change. And I think I really love those comedians the most. The ones that are the same as they were when you started, they're just a little bit older, a little bit creakier, walk a little <laughs> bit more hunched back. I want to read you something. I was, uh, came home and my son was playing hooky and he was watching a comedy special on the television when he was supposed to be in school. And the comedy special he was watching was Bill Burr in London. And I showed him a video of it. And I wrote to Bill Burr in a text. I said, hey, pal, my son, 16, is playing hooky. You're a part of the fabric of our and millions of lives. Much respect, Barry. And you know what he wrote back? He wrote back, tell him about a tell. <laughs> yes. The king, exclamation mm -hmm. point. The goat, as the kids say. So Bill Burr selling out God knows how many shows at the O Arena or whatever you call it in London and calling another comedian who probably, if he were sitting here, would say, hey, I haven't been able to reach those heights yet, right. calling him the goat. So I know Dave Attell has For been sure. a huge part of your life, and I want to shut up and have <laughs> you tell the audience how you first met Dave, and how he became such an inspiration in your career. Yeah, um, it's, it's, I guess, lucky now that it was David Tell who got me into comedy in the first place. It could have been, who knows, but like, yeah, I have the honor of saying um, he was the guy who, who set me on my path for good or bad. Um, I'm originally from Missouri. I grew up on a farm, you know, corn and soybeans and cows and fishing ponds and rabbits and combines and dump trucks and no cable TV. Um, but I was always reading books and the reading of books turned to enjoying writing. And, you know, the, the teachers always said I was good at it. So I always had it in my mind, um, I'm going to be, I'm going to write books. I'm going to write, you know, change the world through literature, which you th think you could do at that time. Uh, so I went to journalism school, went to University of Missouri, and I was doing more film and music stuff then. And then my senior year is when uh, Dave Attell came, and this was the height of Insomniac. So uh, this, the show sold out, Jesse Auditorium. Um, I got to interview him beforehand. And then afterwards, we kind of, uh, a group of us convinced him to come across the street with us to the Heidelberg Bar. And again, this being the height of Insomniac, 
people were sending him Jaeger shots from everywhere. And there's just a table of Jaeger shots. And he can't drink them all himself, so he shared them with us. And, you know, cut to, smash cut to me waking up on my friend Dan's bathroom floor. Like, I, I think there's something to this comedy thing. <laughs> I like this. Yeah, there's, it's... There was something about music that I was not uh, cool enough to cover. Um, I felt a little fake in the things I was writing, but comedy, I was definitely dorky enough to slide right on in there. And I moved to New York immediately after I graduated. Uh, Drove there in a snowstorm in a U-Haul through Times Square. The whole thing and started hanging out at the Comedy Cellar. Um, What year was that? That was January 2003. Got it. And so how did you afford to live in New York? What were you doing? How were you making money? <laughs> yeah. That's a question I might not even know the answer to at this day. Um, Seeing that you're a documentary <laughs> producer, I don't know how that would be possible that you don't make money. Well, the documentary cap is a very new thing I'm wearing. Um, but yeah, I thought I would get a job and... I mean, I interned for Book Magazine for a while, um, applied to a couple other places, and I don't know if I necessarily had the right attitude to do a nine-to-five office-type job where you had to write what you're told to write. But where were you living? Uh, I started out 96 and 3rd. Alone with roommates? I had a roommate. Uh, How much was the rent per month? 900 something each of us. Yeah. It was technically a one bedroom, but we did the thing where you build a a fake wall. So you turn a one bedroom into two and have like no living room space whatsoever. Uh, But it was a building where a bunch of Mizzou grads had done that. It was called, they called it Dormandy Court as a nickname. Normandy Court was the real one. Um, But Mizzou had like a pretty healthy alumni association. So you could kind of. You know, talk to people who had been in the city before you and get leads on jobs and stuff like that. So you became um, kind of a comedy groupie at the Comedy Cellar. I was there so many late nights until like 4 a.m. And who goes on last at the Comedy Cellar every <laughs> night? I tell usually if it wasn't like Artie Fuqua. But yeah, I tell. He was always the late night guy there. Uh, yeah, but I was there for the first time three years. And I then I was in Brooklyn and then I was in Queens every time with the rent lowering. But where are you, but where are you working? I was just freelancing for, uh, I think my first official story that I ever got paid for was about shocker of all shocks, Dave Attell doing a Las Vegas episode of Insomniac for Las Vegas Weekly. Uh, one of the Mizzou alumni hooked me up with the editor there, Scott Dickensheets. And now back then, what do you get paid for a freelance story on a comedian? Oh, see, this is just the saga of all of it. Uh, before the financial crash of 2007-8, you could actually make a living as a journalist, freelance even. You know, uh, you could do like a 40 word little blurb on a comedian coming to Cleveland for the Cleveland scene alt weekly for 200 bucks and pound out, you know, what, four of those a night, maybe? Something like that. And I'd got into the 
New Times uh, media chain, which became the Village Voice chain, and they had, you know, over a dozen alt-weeklies across the country. So I kind of did a lot of calendar blurb work for them and, you know, elevated it into larger pieces. And uh, yeah, there was not a lot of real mainstream comedy coverage at that time. It was, you know, it was shoved in by music and the calendars stuff. What was your first big comedy article and where you were like, wow, I'm... I'm doing it. I'm actually making it happen. <laughs> well, the Atel one was very like, I'm I'm on my way. That was one month after I'd been in New York. And from there, um, yeah, you know what? I actually just realized I had also done a story <laughs> on Last Comic Standing. I'm sorry there, to hear that. <laughs> when there was, uh, what was it? There the was controversy? A, yeah, in Vegas and Drew Carey and Brett Butler were mad and said it was fixed. Yeah, I I believe I'd actually gotten you on the phone at one point too. That's where we first talked, right? Yeah, which I wouldn't have remembered for a long, long time. And what did I say about it? You said it was not fixed. Uh, you had no, uh, even though you had you know clients who were involved, uh, it was you know church and state, much like journalism is supposed to be. You know, it's weird, general. which I can talk about now. When you're doing a show like that, first of all, I had to sign like a 67-page contract saying that I couldn't be in any meetings and I couldn't represent anybody until after the show was over. And I know this will seem odd to you, but I've always had this weird kind of like intuition or psychic kind of thing about comedy and people who I met in the business. And at the beginning of every season, I'd always have some kind of like a DVD or some kind of thing. And there'd be this huge meeting with like a hundred people. And before the meeting started, I always tossed this DVD or whatever it was spinning around and it would end up in the center of the table. I'd say, that's the person who's going to win this year. Josh Blue, Felipe Esparza. Mm -hmm. And they would almost try to conspire to not have those people. They didn't want my, but it was just, you couldn't stop those people. Um, who else? Um, the first one was Dat Fan. Yeah, I failed on that one. I said Ralphie May was going to win. Oh, yeah. Well, we all probably would have placed our bets on Ralphie. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. What I realized is that when you do a reality show, there's two components 
and a performance reality show. One is how you are in the interviews and how you come across to the viewers in the interviews. And if you have an emotional story that connects you to as many people as possible. And then there's the performance. But the third component of the network is the casting of the show. I'm presuming, based on the conversations that I saw, at the time they don't want 10 white guys. Right. They want women. They want diversity. They want to be seen as a network that has... So you want to have... be great to have somebody who's Asian and be great to have somebody who's Latino or... They're also working on those things. So somebody who's really, really funny, if there's 10 extraordinarily funny women that were like the greatest by a million times funnier than all the other people, they wouldn't select 10 women. Mm -hmm. Or if there were 10 African-American men who were a million times funnier than anybody else, they wouldn't. They wouldn't pick 10 African-American guys. They wanted a mix. And so if that's fixed, then that's fixed because they were concentrating on those kind of things. There were people on the show that just weren't that funny that got selected. And then there were people who were really funny that didn't get selected. I don't think it was necessarily fair, but that's the way it was. And then when they're being selected in the beginning, whoever the judges are, again, those are just three people. Even in the year that I wasn't involved, or the two years or whatever it was, they had Roseanne, Damon Wayans, uh, and Geraldo, Rus right? Russell or... Peters. Mm. Geraldo was there when I was there. But, oh, right. But it's like, even if you look at those people that I talk about, or even Geraldo or Natasha Leggero, or, these are just three people who, I mean, who's to say that, you know, the person that likes Barry Manilow, and there's a person who likes Nine Inch Nails, and a person who likes The Stones, and a person who likes Green Day, and a person who likes Jay-Z. Like, are they wrong? Are they wrong for liking them? So... I would think like you're always in a tough business because you're trying to profile different people and you have different comedians that interest you. Mm -hmm. And they might not always be the people that move the needle for your publishers. Oh, for sure. For sure. And that's frustrating. <laughs> that's That's been like my longtime curse of always pitching people two years before they really pop. <laughs> And then everybody else writes about it, and I don't want to because that's boring. And, and I moved on to somebody else who is going to get turned down. Like uh, Michael Che, I put him on the Village Voice cover before. He was um, he was still at uh, The Daily Show, I think, when he was there for that short stint. But he hadn't done, you know, the weekend update. Uh, did him on a cover, Bridget Everett. Before anybody really knew she, who she was, she was my first, or uh, the story I did on her for The Village Voice was her first cover story. I did, <laughs> this is ridiculous to say, but Doug Stanhope's first U.S. cover story. 
And, uh, I mean, it goes on and on. Like, Amy Schumer on the cover of Variety right before she popped. Um, but that's kind of been one of the most satisfying things that I've seen over the now. It's going to be 19 years in January of covering comedy is seeing the industry go from, uh, you know, when an audience will go see a comic in a club, whether it's in the coastal cities or in the flyover states, just it's a comedy show. It's something to do. We're going to go and laugh and have drinks and that's our night without knowing who the comedians actually were. And we've seen now, you know, thanks to social media, um, and yeah, like just this idea of comics now have their own very substantial fan bases and you don't even necessarily need to go through a club system anymore. You can kind of create your own path as some sort of freelance comedian or uh, whatever the appropriate term would be. But that's just very, very gratifying to kind of see like, yes, we we understand that all comedy is subjective and to see audiences finally start catching on to that too and really put time and effort into like their fandoms of certain comics and support their careers uh, has been like very very gratifying and something i'm very happy to have seen happen i always wonder and i always feel like a savant when it comes to comedy, but then I sit across from you and I feel like I should be wearing clown shoes. <laughs> I get upset at myself sometimes because I don't know if I'm in the right place the way I think about comedy because I, you know, I watch a lot of comedy and I just, it's the hottest it's ever been. Obviously, there's a pandemic and it's clearly not hot during the pandemic, but if you just carve out the pandemic and do a biopsy, and just take the decade. I don't know if I'm a snob or if I just don't really understand, but I just don't see the comedians as extraordinary as I did a few decades back. Now, I just want to say this. There are people who I do look at as extraordinary. And when I say extraordinary, Comedy's like a horror movie. The greater the surprise, the greater the horror movie. So I guess I get bummed out because I watch a lot of comedy and I can guess where almost every single bit is going. And I don't like that. Now, there are people that I can't guess as well and those are the people who i think are at the top of the mountain right now and the people where i still can't guess in my mind in no particular order are bill burr dave chappelle jim jeffries those three stand the mind that are three that i just never know where it's going. I can't solve the puzzle, and I'm really great at solving the puzzle. Now, when it comes to Attell, who I absolutely love, the reason why I don't necessarily think of him in terms of those three 
it's not because I don't think he's at the level of those three. It's because I he doesn't give you time to solve the puzzle. There's it's very quick. But I love I love 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 him and I would watch him and love him as much as the three people I mentioned. Mm -hmm. But forget that today, like the comedians that you see ahead of time now, that you feel are the next generation of people that are going to leave a legacy. I'm having a hard time seeing that mm. as much. And I know it's there, but I have a hard time looking at somebody and saying, boy, that person, that person could be the next Carlin. That person could be the next insert name here. So I wanted yeah. to ask you in a roundabout way, this is really going to kill you. <laughs> Who are the people that you watch now or in the past five years that you say to yourself instinctually, 10, 15, 20 years from now, people are going to look at them like they're on the top of the mountain? Yeah. Um, well, to, to give my own roundabout answer, um, I think part of the problem with figuring out those people is that and this is only from my perspective of getting into comedy in you know 2003 and 2004 um and i can't even imagine the difference it would be from when you started but in my time you knew who all the comedians were and I knew every single special coming out and I knew every single album coming out and every label and every person who did this. And you could keep track of all of it pretty easily. And that's just not the case anymore. And it does, it's, it's nice to know that there are more comedians and more perspectives and comedy is definitely more diverse than it's ever been. But yeah, it is harder to find those kind of people. And what you were saying about Attell, Berbiglia, Bo Burnham, um, I, you know, just in my mind, it's that factor of you're telling jokes and funny stories and, you know, showing some of your personality on stage. But I always have this sense of the best comedians are, and it's cliche as hell, but they're kind of sadder people and they have issues that they're working through. And the only way that they can find these certain truths is by exploring it on stage and seeing what works for them. Like Attell is the biggest sweetheart and he's also the saddest basket case in all of comedy. And I just love him so much. There's so much truth to uh, as, as someone who grew up, you know, in a very, very conservative area and thought journalism is going to be my truth. I'm going to I'm going to learn about the world in the way that it actually is through writing about these people that I think are so special and unique and have a lot to say. And uh, there's just something about being in that room with a diverse crowd all at the same time, laughing at the same material, 
that gives me a lot of hope for humankind. That people like, I, th- I think the Attells and the Berbiglias and Bo Burnhams do kind of better than anybody else. Um, to actually answer the question, um, I am a little bit out of the loop with the hot comics these days because I've been working on this film for five years. Uh, but there are people like, I think Steph Tolov is great. I think, um, I mean, now at this point, everyone knows who Punky Johnson is on SNL. But even when she was just bartending at the comedy store, she was just so undeniable. Even when she didn't have these like actual jokes, per se, her presence and her confidence on stage just blew you away. So I think it's not even so much about the material these days. Because, uh, again, especially for you, you've heard everything. There is very little left to surprise you. So I think it's more a matter of kind of making that more emotional connection than the jokes per se, in my mind. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And I love that you mentioned Punky. <laughs> She's so great. So first of all, you know, how many times do you get to meet somebody named Punky? <laughs> I think about what people do to increase their chances of having their dreams come true. And look, you can get a bartending job anywhere. She can get a bartending job anywhere. She's got a great personality. That outdoor bar at the comedy store, I mean, being the bartender at that outdoor bar at the comedy store is probably lower than being a monkey and an organ grinder. Okay, it is the lowest of the lowest form of thing because you're dealing with a bunch of, like you say, sad people drinking themselves to an early grave, even famous people who are very well off having that moment in time and that circle where there's people circling it's like an ocean of sharks and minnows and seals and but you take that job if you're punky because you say hey listen i'm i've i've got my foot in the door of the 
most historic comedy club in the world. Mm -hmm. I don't care if I'm cleaning fucking toilets. I'm here. And if I'm here long enough, as Larry King once said to me, somebody's going to get sick. Somebody's not going to show up. Somebody finally is going to say, hey, we don't have anybody to go on stage here. What are we going to get to go on? And how about that girl with the personality works the bar? Get the bar back over there. Bring her out here. Have her go up and do that set at the belly room or in the original. But you stay prepared for when that opportunity comes. And, you know, just in my life, I think to myself, look, my first two doormen at my first two comedy clubs, Neil Brennan, Timothy <laughs> Oliphant. Uh -huh. I mean, you think back way before then, the improv, 44th and 9th, the doorman, Chris Albrecht, <laughs> president of HBO, president of stars. The guy changed the face of television. He's a doorman. Attell was at, what, stand-up New York or, yeah. or one of them? So the Mopping point, the floor. So the point is, is like, just get in. Now, yeah, she's on Saturday Night Live. Look, I feel uniquely qualified to talk about this. I think I've represented six cast members. I had a guy who hosted twice. I've been on the floor many years. I have helped people test for the show. I've helped people submit for the show. I, I can't even count how many people I've had test. So regardless of her and the show and the bartending job, even if she fools them once on stage, she's still got to fly to New York and she's got to fool them on that stage where they bring on the musical acts. She's got to go on where there's just cameras, there's no audience. And she's got to blow them the fuck away when she knows there's other people waiting to blow them away. I always like to tell my sons, you know, when they ask me what do they have to do to get to the next level, I said, you have to pretend that there's a hundred of you auditioning for something. A hundred of you that's worked your entire life to figure out how to get this gig. And you've got to figure out how to beat a hundred of you. How are you going to do it? And, and, and that's it. And that's what she did. And then you got to get on the show and Saturday Night Live. And then you got to navigate with people who don't want you to succeed because it takes stage time away from them. So they're constantly fucking with her. Now, they might say, oh, no, we don't fuck with anybody. But it's just the nature of life. It's like, look, if you submitted a story to Rolling Stone and it got chosen and there's a hundred other freelance people who have a chance to get the next story in Rolling Stone, do you think they want you to get the next story in? No. It's, I know teamwork is important, but that's the magic and genius, I think, of Lorne is that to figure out how to keep all these different personalities that, that want to do well and keep them working as gears for the machine 
that is SNL as opposed to having one person being more important than the other. Right. But I love that you mentioned that person. I know exactly what you're talking about. So yeah. let's. Just for the record, I also like uh, Luke Schwartz. He's a door guy at the comedy store. Oh, Jews. Come he's on. also, he's been opening for Marin a lot lately, who used to be a door guy. You know, Kennison was a door guy. Yeah. But yeah, I'm a fan of Luke Schwartz. Too. I was a door guy. <laughs> I unfortunately didn't make it in comedy, but I was a, I was a door guy. <laughs> I, I fortunately never had any uh, desire whatsoever to be a comedian. So all of that kind of, I, I get to be just more of a fly on the wall as opposed to, yeah, working. Uh, how can I get, not that, not that if the comedy store would like hire me as a door guy, I wouldn't turn it down because I think it'd be fascinating and a different perspective, but they've already told me they never would. I have to ask you something that's, I hope it's not too sensitive of a topic, but you were around the comedy cellar, okay? <laughs> All right. This place is like ongoing competition of many comedians to see who they're going to sleep with that night. Oh. <laughs> and then the next night it starts again. <sighs> so you here you were, this attractive, beautiful woman hanging around the comedy store. Fresh out of Missouri. Of the comedy cellar, fresh out of Missouri, <laughs> with all these male comics who every night are trying to sleep with a different girl every night. So how did you figure out how to navigate with male comedians knowing, as we all know about male comedians, that they have this gene, a lot of them, that just says, I've got to be a shark. i got to swim and swim until I finally feed, and then I feed, and then I swim again until I feed again. How did you handle that as a woman in that environment? Yeah, um, maybe one part being naive and not really understanding what was happening. One part um, actually knowing what I was talking about in comedy. And uh, it kind of, I don't know if it would be a, a turn off or something if I'm talking more comedy smack than a comic is <laughs> maybe um and another part i did stay there way too late some nights a lot of nights plenty um but i also knew to not put myself in any crazy situations as well but you had to have been propositioned a thousand times by comedians ah uh... I've, um, I, one kissed me one time and that was like the extent of it. Um, I found out years later, Robert Kelly said he'd had a crush on me. <laughs> I'm like, I had no idea, no clue at all whatsoever. Um, and then I cut like things later, but, uh, I don't know, maybe they, saw me as part of the you know the i'm not gonna say part of the club but somebody who actually uh cared enough to belong and they weren't gonna mess with that i have no idea okay. <laughs> no clue 
As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.